on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are listening to us for the first time for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions uh, as they've been studying God's word. Maybe there's a challenge they've faced or they're trying to understand what it means or how it applies today, whether it's to your life, your family, your marriage, your children, your ministry. If we can be of help, again, the number locally is 843-525-1859. The toll-free number for those listening through the internet is um, 800-WAGP-980. Is it 800 or 888? I believe it's... Uh... <laughs> Well, nobody uses nobody it anymore because it's free. I guess, you know, yeah, it doesn't really matter. We should, are free. we should drop that. <laughs> or you can text message us directly here into the studio on the text message email addresses. Actually, it's a email TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. If you call, you can go on the air live, and we always give preference to live callers. Or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. And Deb will uh, shoot it to us in the screen in front of us, and we'll be happy to try to respond to it. Well, Rick, let's go ahead, and we'll get started this morning. We'll take them one at a time as the Lord brings them. Indeed. Well, last uh, week we had just a uh, couple of uh, minutes left and didn't have time for this question that came in. And the caller said that he is aware of a church where the pastor and other members go to a bar where they drink and sing hymns as a way to witness and bring people into the church. What would Pastor Carl tell this pastor? Well, I actually um, was preaching a sermon several months ago, and I put a picture up of a church that did that very thing. Um, The particular church was very liberal theologically, but that's kind of the new thing. And it's not, unfortunately, just in liberal churches. Now it's entered into the evangelical realm where people come to a Bible study. It's usually more... uh, I don't know, cool to have a glass of wine as you study the Bible. Uh, But this is happening all across the nation. And it's very sad. And it's largely due to this newer generation that's coming up that has a very different outlook on alcohol and what the scripture teaches. I guess, you know, all these uh, Christian pastors like myself and those who for over 100 years have taught in America not just based on prohibition, but based on what they understand the word of God to be, that believers should not drink. Uh, A couple of reasons. One, God forbids drunkenness. And number two, God forbids the use of strong drink. The sad thing is, is that those who teach abstinence today are viewed as legalistic and narrow-minded and just outdated. And you need to get on with it and let people have their freedom in Christ to have a beer. 
Well, listen, what is strong drink? If God forbids the use of strong drink with the exception of giving it to a dying and despairing man, as Proverbs 31 teaches, before you can apply any text of scripture, you always need to ask, what does it mean in its historical grammatical context? And of course, I think many of you understand that strong drink is not the distilled liquors that come almost a thousand years after the Bible was written. But strong drink is in reference specifically to alcohol that was um, wine or beer that had fermented. Some uh, wheat product or a fruit product that had fermented into a beer or to a wine. And so not wanting to be guilty of using strong drink in a proper way. And the proper way, such that strong drink can be viewed as a blessing in Scripture, is you mixed it with water. And the ratio is usually four or five parts water to one part wine. And that actually was a blessing because in the uh, biblical culture, it was often uh, unfortunate that the water system, delivery system, would, would make you sick. Like in many countries of the world today, you're wise not to drink their water. And so when you added a little bit of wine to it, it killed the bacteria and made it safe to drink. But what Christians want to do today is they want to have their buzz. Uh, yeah, give me a glass of wine. I, I, want to have a, I want to have a little feeling here. I want to have a little bit of a buzz. And so it's cool to drink wine. And to me, it's just, um, look, I, I, don't know, I don't know of any Christian that God is using in a great way that drinks. I just don't know of any. Now, maybe you think you're one, but I doubt it. I doubt that God's using you in a profound way where you on a regular basis are impacting lives that are being changed, introducing people to Savior. You have power in prayer. I just doubt it. Uh, you know, and I've challenged some pastors on this and they've seen their entire ministry change because they had thought through this issue. There's an article on my website written by a brother who's a graduate of Princeton Seminary before it had gone totally liberal. His name is Robert Stein. He ended up teaching in some of the Southern Baptist schools. His last school of record was the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In fact, I went by there a few years ago by his office. He still has an office there wanting to meet him. I think he's now in his early 80s. Uh, but he still has an office there unless he's passed away since that time. But he wrote an excellent article that appeared in a 1973 edition of Christianity Today. And it's written on a popular level. And I could point you to articles that are filled with Hebrew and Greek. And most people would have a challenge trying to get through them. But this is written on a popular level. Robert Stein. It's called Wine Drinking in the New Testament. It's at my website at searchthescriptures.org. Read that. I think you would be challenged by it. I was recently in an Orthodox Jewish home for a Sabbat meal every Sabbath. The Jewish people, when the Sabbath begins, uh, they gather for a meal. And these people being Orthodox and not wanting to violate the scripture, use a very low grade alcohol content of wine. It was about 2% alcohol. Uh, You'd have to drink a lot of it to get a buzz. And they distributed a half of glass to each person. I didn't have any. Um, the rabbi knew my convictions. I don't see even the need to to have a diluted wine like that. Now, most wines you buy can be 12%, 24%, and on up. But this is 2% wine. And uh, I just uh, respected the fact that they did not want to be guilty of using strong drink 
there at their Sabbat meal. And that's really the way believers need to think today. Anyway, good question. Uh, let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and uh, yeah, it was 877 Oh yeah, 877 number. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this person writes, when you own a business, do you calculate a tithe on gross sales or do you calculate a tithe on the owner draw from the business that is put into your personal account used to run your house? Uh, do you tithe pre-tax or post-tax? The reason I ask this person writes is uh, when most people receive a paycheck, payroll taxes are taken out before the money enters your personal account. Well, it's a good question. It often comes up, and I have a course on the theology of money that is available at searchthescriptures.org. And it's a very in-depth teaching, first on the issue of stewardship, on the issue of saving, giving, uh, debt, investing, planning. Really, it's a full picture. And sometimes people look for a silver bullet. and They say, well, I'm tithing and I just seem to continue to struggle with my finances. And I'll say, well, of course, if God gives you $30,000 to live on and you're spending 40000 this year and you've put $10,000 on credit card, You've lived beyond your God-given means, and yes, you're going to struggle. So God calls us to live within our means. But with that said, what you discover is that people typically who begin the process of tithing, and the word tithe in both Hebrew and in Greek is a mathematical term. It literally means a tenth. And even if you didn't know Greek or Hebrew, you could figure that out just from the accounts like on Abraham where God's man tithed, and it's described as a tenth. Uh, I know there are people who say, well, it wasn't 10%, but 13% and 23%. And again, I deal with all that in my course, The Theology of Money. And those people who are teaching that typically are doing that because they don't want to tithe themselves. And so they're trying to come up with a rationale as to why tithing is not for today, that it's some legalistic standard under the law and that we're under grace and we no longer need to tithe. So with that said, I am starting with the premise that tithing is biblical even before the law was given because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are tithers ever before the law was instituted. Tithing was part of God's moral law, part of God's eternal law. Certainly it was commanded specifically under the law as God established a place of worship, which didn't exist in Abraham's day. There was no temple. So God regulated tithing under the law, as you might expect. And so Moses and Malachi and Nehemiah and Ezra, they all speak about tithing. Jesus commends tithing in the New Testament. And so we shouldn't cancel tithing. Listen, anyone who breaks the least of these, my commandments are called least in the kingdom of heaven. So don't jump on the bandwagon just because, you know, C.I. Schofield in his really first study Bible in the fullest sense, there were some others like the Dake study Bible, but, but in the fullest sense, the Schofield study Bible was the most popular study Bible. And he taught that tithing was not for today. And of course, people wanted some kind of a help to understand the historical setting and different grammatical language issues. And and he did a good job in a lot of things. So I don't dismiss that. But I think he was just wrong on tithing. So with that premise stated, listen, and some of it's just kind of common sense. Let's say you have a business where you make, where you take in a million dollars, you're building roads, but your margins are 1%. Well, you don't tithe off the million dollars. You, you take your, 
you, you, you tithe off of the increase, what God gives you as a quote unquote profit. And so if you're building a house and it costs you $300,000 to build a home and you sell it for 325000 then your increase is $25,000. And that's what you tithe off of. Assuming that that money goes to you to use this person's descriptive writing. If you make, you know, 25000 and and you don't reinvest any of that back in the business and it comes into your pocket, that's what you tithe off of. Do you tithe before or after income? Well, obviously, your description here is you're kind of an independent contractor, so that's a no-brainer for you. But you're maybe asking for other people or you're working backwards because some people do have their uh, federal and state withheld in their tax, in their check. Again, for me, I always be, I look at, you know, the tax I owe the government is something that I owe to Caesar, just like I owe the power company every month and the phone company every month, and I pay different bills. Those are expenses that I have, and I don't pay all my expenses, and when I'm all done, say, well, let's see, what do I have left over? No, what God puts in my hand, that's what I tithe off of. And so I do tithe pre-tax. In fact, you know, to me, again, it's not just an issue of percentages. And I'm not going to tell you what I give, but I can tell you it's way past 10%. And what my wife and I have done for a few decades is we've increased sometimes a small portion of a percentage, but we increase each year. And it's amazing to me how God is just so faithful. And that's just what we give to our local assembly and then there's other ministries and different things that we invest in that are kingdom related that are important to us. So the tithe is 10%, but it's not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. So God speaks also of how they had robbed him, not only in tithes, but in offerings. And in the offering is above and beyond the tithe. And again, if we're sensitive to God and to his will and his purposes for our life. Sometimes he will impress us beyond the tithe to give. And what I might do is not a pattern for someone else, but what is a pattern for all is it starts. The starting place is 10%. That's what God calls us to do. Now, some people might say, well, how could you ask some poor old widow who's living on a social security check to, to tithe. I'm not asking you to God is. And I'll tell you, God will take care of that poor old widow a lot better than we will. If we will do what he says. Very good. Eight, four, three, five, two, five, one, eight, five, nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line and our next caller says in your long walk with Christ, have you ever changed your opinion on interpreting scripture? In other words, as you've matured in Christ, did you change any of your views on what the Bible says? Well, certainly, um, you know, as you grow in Christ and you're trying to understand a text of Scripture and how it applies, and uh, yes, absolutely. For instance, um, someone brought up the issue of alcohol today. My initial response as a generally new Christian, as I was being taught, was that Christians shouldn't drink. And the three primary reasons that people gave was, number one, you are to abstain from every appearance of evil. Some things are not evil, but they can have the appearance of evil. And so if you're at a, a party uh, where people are doing business and there's an open bar and say 95% of the people are using alcohol and you have a uh, Coca-Cola in a plastic cup with a straw, people might think that you're using alcohol. And if you want to really be above and be 
you know, above reproach in every respect, you might want to have a can so that people don't end up calling you. Oh, he says he doesn't use alcohol, but I saw him using alcohol. So some things are not evil, but they potentially appear to be evil. In fact, you will discover that if you abstain from every appearance of evil, you will keep yourself from a lot of temptation. I tell young couples who I am counseling uh, in premarital relationships not to spend inordinate times alone together in her apartment or his apartment. Though it may be perfectly harmless, it can be potentially an opportunity for temptation. So if you abstain from things that might look evil and be misconstrued, you'll guard your heart. The second reason was, uh, does it glorify God? Look, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, Paul says it's all to be done for the glory of God. Ask yourself, does alcohol, Christian taking alcohol today, really glorify God? Look, these companies, Anweiser, Bush, and all the rest, you know, they're, they're run by a lot of people who are very worldly, very evil. All you have to do is look at an ad, and it's obvious that they're using sex and alcohol to sell their product and uh, it's being inspired by the evil one. I don't think, in my opinion, by any stretch, that it is glorifying to God today. And then third, you want to ask, does it cause a brother to stumble? Some things are not, um, some, some things can, you may have a freedom to do, but they can cause someone else to stumble, either in that they despise your behavior or They look at your behavior and they think that's a freedom that they can take. And those three reasons alone, I think, are enough to abstain. But I don't think it's as gray as people make it. Some will say, well, then I'll just have a glass of wine when no one's around and just me and my wife. And it's not that gray. It's an issue of strong drink. And you cannot convince me that you can have a glass of wine the very first time and not get a buzz. Most wine that you take is going to be 12, 24, higher percentage of alcohol. And you have one glass and you're going to be feeling your oats. Why? Because it's strong drink. And God says, don't use it. Stay away from it. And if you are buzzed in your mind, then you are breaking the greatest of all the commandments, which is to love the Lord your God with your whole mind and so forth. And God calls us not to love him and to serve him with a buzzed mind, but with a clear mind. And what you're really telling me, if you have to use alcohol in order to uh, have a fulfilled life, is that Jesus is not fulfilling and that you need you need this to relax. You need this to give you some joy as if the spirit of God can't ease your tension and help you to to relax. So that's the sad day we live in. So you asked me, did I change my opinion on that? Yes, I went from arguing for abstinence on the basis of the appearance of evil, not causing someone to stumble, and does it glorify God, to I think a much stronger argument that I did not understand when I was a new Christian. And so when I began to read some of these works and even in seminary, as I read far more scholarly things that interacted with the Hebrew and Greek, which I was uh, learning and able to do at that point, I saw, boy, that the, the church has really been buffaloed. And a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, these young teachers, look, Mo- we, drop, we drop Moody as a, a Moody radio, and I no longer recommend or endorse Moody Bible Institute. Why? Because they officially said that it's okay for their faculty to drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. That's just beyond stupid. I mean, that's just sheer 
uh, ignorance. It it is a terrible example to the next generation. Yeah, you know, I just want to light up a cigar. I want to have my pipe. Well, why don't you tell that to R.C. Sproul, who, uh, you know, suffered with uh, lung problems because he got hooked on tobacco, that great reformed theologian. Uh, It's not wise. It's not wise at all. And to gamble in moderation, well, I guess when you got Jerry Jenkins giving millions of dollars to Moody and he in the Wall Street Journal, when he loses $8,000 and he said, it's basically just chump change. No big loss for me. You know, he enjoys gambling. Sure. Then they're going to adapt to the givers rather than to what's true. I mean, gambling in moderation, smoking in moderation, much less drinking. We had all the motivation in the world to drop Moody at that point. And now look at the trouble that they're in as a school. Why? Because they're attracting the wrong kind of leaders uh, into their institution who are compromised. And that's not going to build a good institution. It's only going to destroy it. And that's what's happening. They're beginning to destroy themselves from, from within. Very good. All right. We've got a number of questions that have come in. And uh, the next caller has requested the following. In Hebrews 9.27, when it says it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment, how does this apply to a person like Lazarus who is dead but brought back to life? Did he have to die again? Well, it's a, it's a fair question. And Lazarus is a highly debated individual in terms of, you know, what actually transpired in his body. The general principle is, yes, it is appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. There's no such thing as dying and then coming back, you know, as a rat or into some higher level of, um, you know, the Hindu uh, faith where you, you go through this reincarnation process and you're, you're brought back maybe in a higher order and so forth. It's appointed for a man to die once. And the, after that comes the judgment. Now, Lazarus is a unique person. And one of the questions that we could debate is, did death in the truest sense under the new covenant definition take place in his life? We don't doubt that it took place physically because he had been dead for four days. But now under the new covenant, God's, you know, gives and delineates some further definitions in reference to death in the book of James, where James uh, says, listen, just as the body without the spirit is dead, even so faith without works is dead. So death in the truest sense takes place when the spirit, the soul, the immaterial portion of man leaves the body. And that happens just once. And this is why these outer body um, experiences that people have had, you know, there was a whole slew of Bible studies, videos, and everything that were done for churches based on some kid who was, you know, a child and supposedly died and went to heaven and came back and told all his experiences. And that is so dangerous, so far from the truth of Scripture that, you know, you can die, go to heaven and then come back and tell people what it was like or or even die and go to hell, which is typically not the case. But one guy had the reverse experience and then came back and described hell. And look, that's extra biblical and you cannot add or subtract to the word of God. We have a finished canon of scripture. And so God is no longer giving new revelation. The revelation of God is complete. That's what the word canon, it's from a Latin word that means a measuring stick. 
So any idea that you come up with, if it subtracts subtracts from Scripture, it's wrong. If it adds to Scripture, it's beyond the Word of God, and you don't know that it's true. And so God warns not to add or subtract to His Word. You stay within the bounds of what He has written in the 66 completed books that we have today. With that said, uh, it's possible, I suppose— that Lazarus could have had some outer body experience, but that would have been unique and it would have not been the norm. There are some exceptions in the scripture. For instance, in Acts chapter eight, we find an encounter where the apostles come down and after people had been saved through the laying on of hands, they received the Holy Spirit. That's different from how the Spirit was given in Acts 2. That's different from how the Spirit was given in Acts 10 with Cornelius in his house. Uh, typically, at the moment of conversion, the Spirit was given, and it's recorded in the book of Acts. But with the Samaritans, he was given after they had truly, genuinely believed. Had someone had a heart attack before the apostles made it down from Jerusalem, they would have went to heaven as genuine believers in Jesus Christ. They were Samaritans. They were half Jew and half Greek, and potentially there could have been great division in two churches where people looked down on Samaritans. And so when the apostles came down through the laying on of hands, they were in essence, one, affirming that these people had genuine salvation. And secondly, that they were on the same platform and ground as that of of Jewish people. Okay, now that's an exception to the rule. By the time you come to the epistles, and Pentecost is long over, and that transition period is finished. Paul makes it very clear in him and Christ, you also have, having listened to the message of salvation, the gospel, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So clearly by Ephesians 1, when that's written, the moment you hear and believe, you receive the Spirit. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we've all been baptized by one spirit. It's assumed to be true. In Romans 8, 9, he says, if you don't have the spirit, you're not one of his. So there is exceptions to the rule. Even with, uh, I think there's a question that came uh, with Elijah and Elisha a little bit later here. Um, Rick has pulled up all these questions that have come in in reference to Elijah and Elisha and what their state was in terms of a man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. But even with Elijah and Elisha, it it was in reference to the two witnesses that they were asking. In one sense, they died and they didn't die. Uh, They were literally translated up into heaven. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind as Elisha, his protege, watched him. And Enoch uh, was also taken up to to heaven as well. Uh, Enoch was no more. Uh, but what happened in the interplay between their feet going off the ground and going up into heaven? Did they receive their resurrection body? I don't think so. No more than Moses did. And yet you see Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration in some kind of a body. And you see the saints in heaven who are still awaiting the resurrection because the resurrection of course, comes in different stages, but one aspect of the resurrection happens at the rapture of the church. So I did a funeral on Saturday and that person was not yet in his resurrected body. How do I know? Because the Lord will bring with him from heaven, those who have fallen asleep, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive shall be caught up. And so they're still awaiting a resurrection body. 
and yet um, since Enoch and Elijah could not go to heaven in the bodies that they have, in one sense, they had a death. Listen, if it's appointed for a man to die once, even when I go up in the rapture, this body that I'm in right now will die and I will be in the twinkling of an eye transformed into a new resurrection body. Why? Because this mortal must put on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable because this body is not suited for heaven any more than an unbeliever's body is suited for hell. When the unbeliever dies, he ultimately is given at the final resurrection of the dead, what's called the second resurrection. That is not a blessing to be a part a final body that is suited for the lake of fire. It appears he has some temporal body now, but he's given the final body at the end of the thousand year reign, which again, we'll study all in the uh, our ex, uh, upcoming exposition of the book of Revelation. All right. Very good. Well, you mentioned it, so we might as well uh, address it to Terry from Mars Hill, North Carolina. Love that place. Uh, you like Mars Hill? You've been there before? No, but I just love the, the oh, fact the name. that they called it that. Oh, know, yeah, from, Mars Hill, sure. What's yeah. that, Act 17? Yeah. yeah. Okay, anyway, he writes, I have heard several people speak about the free grace theology. Could you address that? And the two witnesses that John talks about in the Revelation chapter 11, I've heard that many think that one will be Elijah, the other possibly Moses, and of course in Hebrews nine twenty seven. Uh, just as people are destined to die once. My question is, since Elijah did not die and Enoch did not die, but both were raptured, so to speak, is it possible that they are the two witnesses who eventually die but raise three and a half days after their death? It's certainly possible. No one knows for sure. We do know that the book of Malachi teaches the second coming of Elijah. I preached a sermon once in my series on Malachi, the second coming of Elijah. We usually think of the second coming of Christ, but not the second coming of Elijah. And not to mention Jesus himself taught in the gospels that the prophet Elijah is going to come again. So the Bible is very clear. Elijah is coming again. Could he be one of those two witnesses? Highly likely. Some assume that it's Enoch because he was translated. Some assume it's John the Baptist because he was an Elijah type. Some assume it's Moses, and that's what I would argue for if I had to pick one. I would say it would be Elijah and Moses. One, because the ministry of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 mimics the ministry of Elijah and Moses. And by the way, amillennialism is just kicked out the window over these issues. Why? Because they just see the next great event as the second coming. They take a historical view of Revelation or what's called the preterist view of Revelation, that it has already happened and it was all fulfilled before 70 AD. You have to kick out a lot of Old Testament prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, not to mention just plain statements like the Lord Jesus where he speaks of Elijah coming again. You know, you you have to write away so many of the prophetic passages in the Word of God. So with all that said, you might want to listen to my sermon on Revelation 11, because I go through some of these different viewpoints. Um, I think it's interesting, too, that when you think about it, on the Mount of Transfiguration, that um, Jesus is interfacing with Moses and Elijah. Again, has Moses been resurrected? No. How do I know? Because the Bible is very clear in Daniel chapter 12 that the resurrection of Old Testament saints 
is distinctly different from that of church saints. The first catching up is that of the church, the body of Christ. When we will meet the Lord in the air, we'll be translated in the twinkling of an eye. That's distinctly different from the resurrection of Old Testament saints. In Daniel 12, we're told now at that time, Michael, the great prince, speaking about Michael, the archangel, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. What time is that? That's the time that Jesus describes in Matthew 24, 21. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble by the prophet Jeremiah. It's called the great tribulation. And Jesus said, there is not a time parallel in all of human history. And it is so severe that unless those days had been cut short, no one would survive. So Jesus basically is echoing what Daniel 12 teaches. There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, your people, meaning who people, meaning Israel, that's who the context is dealing with. And everyone who's found written in the book will be rescued. So God is going to speak to those who are asleep in the dust of the ground, their bodies, and they're going to awake some to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so God makes it very, very clear that the resurrection of Israel is yet to happen. All the Old Testament saints are still awaiting a resurrection. Yet you find Moses there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Just like you find tribulation saints who are still awaiting their resurrection body, they're going to be a part of uh, a later resurrection revelation teaches, yet they're wearing some kind of a robe. So it appears we have some kind of recognizable temporary body before God gives us our final body that will be like Christ in a full, in the fullest sense and our salvation is complete. So I would make it a test of fellowship. What I would say is important is there are two coming witnesses and to understand why they're coming, what they are doing, what God is trying to accomplish through them. That's the focus. If God had wanted us to know their names, he would have told us specifically in Revelation, but he didn't. All right, and then the other part of his question is, what is and what do you think of free grace theology? Um, it, it's, uh, it misconstrues the biblical practice of grace. Paul says this in Titus chapter 2. Let me first tell you what free grace theology is. There's, there's a movement in our country that basically has said we're saved by grace, and the grace of God is so secure in one sense, it really doesn't matter how you live. And it's somewhat of a a, a throw the baby out with the bath bath water response to the Lordship Salvation Camp, where sometimes people so front load the gospel that they forget the fact that when they were new Christians, they had a lot of baggage and a lot of worldliness in their life that didn't dissolve at the second they were converted. But through that process of sanctification, God began to change them. And so it takes time and, and, uh, learning the word of God and obeying the scripture through God's help that we are sanctified and changed. Uh, so there are hundreds of commands given to saved people in the new Testament, calling them to a new dimension of the Lordship of Christ. So I'm not saying that you can receive Jesus as Savior and just ignore him as Lord. The root of all sin is an attitude that I want to be in charge of my life. That's what Jesus taught in that great parable 
where he speaks of unbelieving Israel, where they said, in essence, we do not want this man to rule over our lives. And at the end of the parable, those are the people who are thrown into eternal judgment. In other words, the cause of a lifestyle of sin is an attitude of sin. I want to be the Lord, the king of my life. And so when we come to Christ, if the conversion is real, there is a conviction. And God sometimes just puts his hand on one issue to show us that we are guilty and that we need forgiveness. But then as we are regenerated by the spirit, uh, you begin to grow and he puts his hand on dozens of things. But with that said, when someone is converted, the general principle is if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So Paul will say this for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. In other words, when Jesus came, he didn't die for some people or most people. He died for all people, for all men. The death of Christ was unlimited in its extent to save anyone. And it's the unlimited atonement of Christ that will become the basis of condemnation for many people. No one will be able to say, well, God didn't even give me a chance. Even if I wanted to believe, though I didn't, I would not have had a way of escape because Jesus died only for the elect. No, he died for all. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. Notice he goes from all men to us. I'm reading Titus 2.12. Now he's talking about believers instructing us who receive that grace, who've been a recipient of that grace. And Paul has the same interchange, by the way, in Romans 5, the second half, as he compares one man, Adam, and one man, Christ. One man, Adam, brought sin to all men. One man, Christ, brought salvation to all men, but then he qualifies those who receive that gift of justification. That's what he's talking about here in verse 12, instructing us who've been saved by this grace to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what the grace of God does. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. A new has become, all things have become new. And so I think the free grace movement, again, I'm sure there's exceptions, but generally speaking, as the terms are defined, uh, is a uh, mis- um, has misconstrued the grace of God and what it does to someone when they're genuinely saved. One of my favorite phrases that you use periodically is that since you were saved, uh, you sin all you want to, but you don't want to because That's you've got right. a new want to. That's right. Um, the reformers are often credited with saying this, though no one has ever been able to show me in print a particular reformer who said it, not to mention most of them spoke German or French or some other language, so it wouldn't rhyme the way it comes into English. But we're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. Uh, that is certainly a principle the reformers taught. People say, Calvin said we're saved by grace. I'm not sure that would come out in French. And I had four years of it. It's not that great, but I know it doesn't rhyme in French but like it does in English. But I think he taught that principle, certainly, that the grace that saves is never alone. It results in a changed life. And that's part of what the reformers meant when they were speaking about perseverance of the saints. All right, our next caller just called in, and they'd like your advice on how a Christian mom should deal with a grown daughter who is an unbeliever and tries to almost goad her mother by saying things like, the mom is a Christian when she wants to be, and other hurtful things. This mom prays for her daughter, but what are other ways this mother can deal with a daughter who's brought into the, bought into the lies of this world? Well, 
again, the fact that um, you love her unconditionally speaks volumes. And the fact that you're praying for your daughter is just wonderful. And for you to ask the Lord to give you the strength to do that, because none of us have the power in and of ourselves to respond on that level, on that supernatural level. Only God's grace will equip you when you have, especially a child whom you love beyond measure, your own flesh and blood and earnestly desire that daughter to spend eternity with you. And when that adult daughter goads you like that, it would be very, very easy for you to return evil for evil or insult for insult. And so one thing that you might want to do is hide some scripture in your heart that deals specifically with that very, very truth. I am reminded in first Peter chapter two, uh, it tells us that, uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, uh, speaking of the Lord Jesus. And he prefaces that whole argument by reminding us that we've been called to suffer. He begins back in 2.18, speaking of servants being submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Anyone can um, respond well to a boss, or in this case, in the first century, we had 60 million people in the Roman Empire who were under slavery. And there are all kinds of slaves, doctor slaves, teacher slaves, uh, common slaves, every kind. Uh, when Rome conquered a people, they wouldn't put them all in jail, but they would indenture them as slaves and they would be assigned to different people. And you could be a born again Christian and be assigned a slave by the Roman government. And you were not to take advantage of that person as a Christian. Uh, nonetheless, um, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not just to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, what credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But when you do what's right and suffer for it, when you as a mom are living a consecrated life and your daughter's accusations against hypocrisy are false, when you're doing what's right and you suffer for it and patiently endure it, that's what finds favor with the Lord for you've been called for this purpose. That's part of what God's called us to be as believers And Christ did that very thing. Because if there was anyone who was perfect and no one could ever unjustly insult him or revile him, it was a sinless son of God. And yet while he's hanging on the cross, burying our sins there on the cross, Peter reminds us that while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. And then he applies it to wives who've got unjust husbands. And then he applies it, if the shoe's on the other foot, to husbands who've got maybe unbelieving wives. And then he says to sum it all up, and this is maybe what I would encourage you to memorize, though, to meditate on all of First Peter 2 and 3 to help you through this process, because this is where the strength is going to come. God is going to use his word because it's like food that strengthens the soul. And of course, when we're tempted to do what's wrong, if we've not hid scripture in our heart, we'll have no ammunition, namely the sword of the spirit to respond in a godly fashion. And so we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Your word I've hid or treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so when you've hidden scripture in your heart and you've got a daughter 
that's attacking you and the spirit of God is bringing to the forefront of your mind scripture you've hidden, you'll be able to respond in a godly way to sum it up at all. You be harmonious, sympathetic, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead because you've been called for that purpose. Why? For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So with your daughter, she's attacking you. What do you do? You don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. You try to affirm her. You bless her in areas you can bless her. You do good towards her. You seek peace with her. Um, Even if it means, well, honey, you know, Maybe we just shouldn't discuss this topic because we don't really go anywhere with it. But if you ever want to talk to me about it, I'd love to. But you just love her in spite of her. What does that do? That disarms a person. That's what, um, you know, happens, happened to the Apostle Paul when he recounts his testimony in three places in the book of Acts. And on one occasion, he gives a fuller explanation than there in Acts 9 which is most often uh, quoted where Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. In other words, when he had someone like Stephen who is blessing God and blessing even his persecutors, uh, there was a goad in Paul's side. Uh, when he saw someone like Stephen as the robes were placed at his feet and he said, like Jesus said, father, forgive them. That had a profound impact on Paul's life. That brought him to a conviction that God used that ultimately turned him to a living faith. And that's what can happen to your daughter when you love her unconditionally. But this is a supernatural process and you can't do it on your own. And you certainly cannot do it consistently apart from the treasured hidden word of God in your heart. So I would turn you to meditate on first Peter two and three, and maybe memorize first Peter three verses uh, eight through 12. That would be a good text. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, don't forget, you can always listen to this uh, program uh, repeated at our website, wagp.net, as well as on uh, searchthescriptures.org. Uh, so, by the way, if you've ever had a question uh, in years past or months past, or perhaps you've got a question that somebody else has asked, there is a search button, a search field at searchthescriptures.org. If you say drinking or divorce or anything like that, it will show you every Bible line program as well as every message Dr. Brogy has ever preached on that particular subject. Now, uh, Beverly, who is living in Derry, New Hampshire, writes, I appreciate your teachings and have been following you for years on WDER radio. Um, On April 16th of this year, I listened to your radio broadcast. In that teaching, you mentioned the meaning of swearing to something by putting the hand under a person's thigh. I noted it, stuck the paper in my Bible, but the notes are incomplete. If I remember correctly, it had something to do with the loins and the place from which the genesis of something begins. Could you please send me a more complete explanation? I've been wondering about that for a long time. Well, I'm not going to send it to you, but uh, but I'm going to verbalize it. Uh, I don't know what I was preaching on April April the 16th, but no doubt I was in Genesis. And I don't know if I was in Genesis 25 or Genesis 47, but those are the two like central passages that deal with this uh, subject. 
And so a lot of the questions, I do type out literally some of the questions that come in, especially to pastors and people in foreign countries who I'm not sure whether uh, they'll listen to the Bible line, but they listen and download the sermons that I preach in different places where they live. Uh, Or sometimes I just feel like the question has come and there is such a desperate need And I may not be on the Bible line the next Tuesday because I'm going to be doing a funeral or out of the country and, and I'll try to respond immediately. But a lot of questions that come in, uh, Rick uh, has them here on the screen in front and we try to respond because I can speak a whole lot faster than I can type. But in Genesis 25, let me go there first. Now, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah and she bore, and that's not the one I want. It's, um, let me back up Genesis 24. Here it is. Uh, now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, probably Eleazar, though he's unnamed, who had char- who was in charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, Yahweh, it's all caps in the NASB, telling you that this is a covenant name for God. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God, the Elohim of heaven and the God of earth, uh, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. So Isaac needs a bride. Why does he need a bride? Because he's the son of promise. Messiah is going to come through Abraham's lineage, and he is not to marry an unbeliever. Now, Moses had not yet codified that. Later on in Deuteronomy, I think it's the seventh chapter, Moses is going to say, you shall not intermarry with the pagans in the land. Don't do that. Why? Because your heart will be drawn away and steered away. Not to mention, uh, unless a Gentile is converted to Judaism, you're going to dilute the Messianic line through which the Messiah is going to come. God reaffirms the same truth in the New Testament, that we're not to be unequally yoked, that a believer has nothing in common with an unbeliever, and that a believer is only to marry a Christian. Now, if you're married to a non-believer right now, it's God's will for your life. So don't try to dissolve that relationship. But if you're not married, God only wants you to marry a believer. And of course, he recognizes that the potential believers would be back with his brother Nahor, who is a believer, and go there and among their family members there, find someone that you can marry. So he says, you shall not take, you shall swear to me, you shall not take a wife for my son, uh, for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me saying to your descendants, I will give you this land. He will send his angel before you and will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. And so what this verse represents here in Genesis 24, 9, I don't know if that's what I was preaching back in April, um, but it would parallel what we used to do as kids. When, 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 When we had some serious commitment that we were going to make to each other, we'd say, let's shake on it. 
And sometimes we'd say, I, I cross my heart and swear to God. Um, and we would make this binding agreement. Now, of course, there was a time in this country where you could do a lot of business just on a handshake and on a man's word. In fact, when you step into the new covenant where, where we don't take oaths in that way, a man's word is yes should be yes and his no should be no. There's some people that I know well enough that I had a man who worked in my house and we didn't really know how much work was going to be done. We didn't know the full expense of everything that was going to be needed. Uh, there were some unknowns, but just on each other's word, because we trusted each other and knew how each other would be fair-minded, uh, it was basically a word-of-mouth agreement. Uh, it's hard to do that today, and sometimes it's unwise to do that today. Uh, there more, more people get into trouble because they don't have it in writing, and sometimes what people thought you said was not there. But this is a really important covenant deal. And he, he's, he's swearing to him, don't select an, a wife from Isaac from among the pagan Canaanites. And uh, you, you need to go to one of my relatives and you need to uh, not take him back there. He needs to leave that place and ultimately come back to the land of promise. Now, later on in Genesis, uh, at the end of Jacob's life, there's an instant replay. Is that what I was on that yep. day? Jacob's deathbed. So that would have been Genesis um, 40, uh, 48, no, 47, 47. Um, so Jacob's on his deathbed, and it says, um, when the time for Israel to die, that's Jacob's new name. So God renamed Jacob, if you remember, Israel, who had 12 sons who formed the children of Israel. And so we call that piece of land today Israel. That's what God calls it, among other names. He doesn't call it Palestine. Unfortunately, in some of our Bibles, the maps are illustrated Palestine. That was the pagan name that Hadrian gave to the land in 135 A.D., uh, God's name for the land was Israel. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said, please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfully. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said, swear to me. So he swore and placing his hand under his thigh and Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. So again, this is, this is important because when you place your hand under someone's thigh, not something that we do today, you are making a solemn promise. You are putting your hand at the place of the seat of procreative power. And of course you see other examples in Exodus one, Exodus eight, uh, Judges 8, where the loins are the description of the place of, of procreative power. And God had made a promise that through the seed of Abraham would come the Messiah. And with that seed would also come a land. And so Jacob wanted to be buried in the land of promise. So it was just a solemn way of making I promise by the Messiah who's embodied in the Jewish people to keep